Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning and happy Easter to you. Thrilled that you've been able to spend this part of your Easter weekend with us here at Gateway. Um, I've been doing a series over the last uh, couple of weeks, probably three or four weeks now, um, on the book of Isaiah. And um, with Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, we've got a little bit out of order. We're, we've been in the first four or five chapters of Isaiah, but with regard to Palm Sunday and um, Easter Sunday, I've jumped right over into the end of the book. And I mentioned last week, it's a little bit like reading an, a murder mystery and a couple of pages in you so want to know who did it, you go to the end and, uh, and find it out, and then you come back and work out how the author got us to that place. And I know it's probably not the best way of approaching Isaiah, but given the Easter season, we've chosen to do that. So we've leapt from chapter 5 right across to what we call the servant songs. Now, the servant songs, there's four of them. Some, some scholars say five, and they include the first few verses of Isaiah 61, but generally there's regarded as being four. The first is found in Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 9. The second is found in Isaiah 49 and runs from verse 1 through verse 13. The third is in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. And the fourth and longest of the servant songs is Isaiah 52, verses 13 Uh, right through to the end of chapter 53. And in these servant songs, we are introduced to a mysterious figure. Last week, we talked about who that figure might be, and there are basically three approaches to who this mysterious servant is. Some people say it's a people. Some people say it's a personification, that is, a people within the people. And some people say it is a person, an individual. And I don't want to repeat all of last week's uh, message, but I came to the conclusion that I think it's a person. And uh, we're introduced to this mysterious servant, the one who will obey God's will, who will do God's work, and will represent God's interests in a way that corporate Israel, the servant Israel, had not been willing or able to do. Now, as you read these songs, and I hope you have or that you will do soon, you'll notice that three of the four songs have notes of increasing intensity of suffering and rejection. The exception is the first song, Isaiah 42. That doesn't really touch on that. But from there on, it starts to develop. In the second song, uh, which is Isaiah 49, there's a clear hint that the road ahead is going to involve the hostility of people toward this mysterious servant and his mission. So Isaiah 49, 7 reads, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. The intensity develops. So by the third song in Isaiah 50, we see this increasing intensity of hostility, where it says in verse 6 and 7, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The servant's willingness to listen and obey led him down a strange pathway that involved shame, 
humiliation, pain, rejection, and violence. This portion also speaks of his incredible courage and resolve in the face of that rejection and violence to continue to do the will of his master, even in the face of all that hostility. He says, I have set my face like a flint. By the way, that passage is clearly in view in Luke's gospel where it says that Jesus set his face to go toward Jerusalem. Most, most scholars would see that as a, an allusion to this passage in Isaiah 49. Now when we come, sorry, Isaiah 50, when we come to the fourth song, we come really to the climax of this suffering in the face of this hostility. What I'm going to do is read to you the whole passage, and then I want to go back over it through the verses and get you uh, engaged in, in the, the incredible prophetic power of this fourth song. So Isaiah 52, verse 13, reading through to the end of chapter 53, reads like this. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. Just as many were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred he no longer looked human. So now he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their face from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illness. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishments that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see his descendants and enjoy long life. And the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work and he will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will equip many, for he has carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he was willing, because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered among the rebels, when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. You know, interesting, but if we didn't have that song in Isaiah, we could almost make it up from New Testament quotations. It's quoted at least 10 times in the New Testament. Romans 10, 16 quotes verse 1. John 12, 38 quotes verse 1 as well. Matthew 18, 17 quotes verse 4. 1 Peter 2, 24 quotes verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 25 quotes verse 6. Romans 8, 36 verse 7. 
Acts 8.32, verses 7 and 8. 1 Peter 22, verse 9. Mark chapter 15, verse 12, along with Luke 22, verse 37. Almost the whole of that servant song is found in portions in the New Testament, which gives us, I think, an insight into how valuable, how important it is. The parallels between Jesus and this mysterious servant of Isaiah are at least to New Testament eyes unmistakable. And I mentioned last week how Philip pulled alongside the Ethiopian's chariot in Acts chapter 8. And this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the fourth servant song in Isaiah. And he asks Philip the question that we asked last week. Who is is this text talking about? And it says in verse 35 that Philip went alongside and began to tell him about Jesus. In the Hebrew version of this song, there are five stanzas, or if you like, five verses. And each of them is made up of three verses in the English translation. So verse one, or stanza one, goes from Isaiah 52, verse 13 to verse 15. Stanza two is the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Stanza three is verse four to six. Stanza four, seven to nine. And stanza five is 10 to 12. So these five verses, each made up of three verses in our English translation. And there are numerous ways of approaching this song. One is to consider the first verse, stanza one, as a kind of prologue that summarizes the main theme of the song. Then stanza two and stanza four state facts, and stanza three and stanza five give us the meaning of the facts. So I want to take you this morning on a little bit of a journey through this song, verse by verse. So stanza one, and it reads like this again, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth at him, for what had had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. So the song starts off in exactly the same way the first song starts off. It says, behold my servant. And the exhortation is, look at him. Contemplate him. Don't just give him a cursory glance. Think carefully about my servant. Some of you may possibly remember a number of years ago, I took that word behold and applied it to the four gospels because each of the four gospels has a kind of a theme running through it and we are invited to behold that theme, that that picture of Jesus. So Matthew's gospel concentrates on the fact that he's a king. And Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Behold your king. Mark's emphasis is on Jesus the servant. And so we have, Behold my servant. Luke's emphasis on Jesus is regarding his humanity. So we have, Behold the man from Zechariah chapter 6. And John's emphasis is on Jesus' divinity. So in Isaiah 40, we have, Behold your God. Each one of them are telling us, Look at him. Contemplate him. Think about him. You won't see this if you just throw him a cursory passing glance. And then it says, my servant will deal prudently. The idea in the Hebrew is that he will succeed in the task that he's he's been appointed to. He will triumph. And (coughs) And the passage speaks of a threefold exaltation. 
It says he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. It's really difficult to read that and not imagine the readers of the New Testament seeing the threefold exaltation of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at the right hand of the Most High. The Hebrew, by the way, literally reads, he will be exalted and be high and lifted up. And that phrase, high and lifted up, may be a familiar one to you if you've been reading Isaiah. It's used in combination, high and lifted up, used in combination four times in Isaiah, nowhere else in the whole of the Old Testament. And in the other three places outside this song, it is always used to describe God. It's used in that passage, very famous passage, Isaiah's calling, Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then in Isaiah 33 verse 10, where God is speaking and he says, I will be high and lifted up. And then in Isaiah 57 verse 15, for thus saith the one who is high and lifted up. Four times it's used, those three directly and clearly are speaking of Yahweh himself. He is the one who's high and lifted up. And now suddenly this servant is also high and lifted up. I think that clearly hints who we are dealing with as we begin to unpack this mysterious servant figure. The pathway, though, to this exaltation is a stunning surprise. It doesn't come through the exercise of power or force or brilliance. It comes through a pathway of humiliation and rejection. He is marred more than any other man. One translation reads, such disfigurement, his appearance hardly human. In a manner that the other stanzas of the song will explore more fully, we see that the result of this marring will be that he will sprinkle many nations. Some translations, if you're reading, you might see the word startle many nations. My translation has sprinkle, and I actually, without going into all the reasons, prefer that he will sprinkle many nations rather than startle them. The word sprinkle immediately brings to mind the work of a priest. In the Old Testament, on that great day of atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the appointed sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the horns of the altar. And it was that blood that would allow forgiveness and reconciliation for the people between them and God. So Leviticus 16.14 says, And he shall bring some of the blood of the young bull and sprinkle it with his finger upon the east side of the mercy place and then seven times in front of it. So this idea of sprinkling and atonement, sprinkling and reconciliation is linked in the Old Testament. So when it says this servant will sprinkle many nations, I think we're being led down a path of understanding. In the New Testament, Peter talks about the work of the Godhead in the process of our salvation. And it says we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He will sprinkle many nations. By the way, in the book of Hebrews, we are presented with Jesus as our our high priest. And he doesn't sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals as in the Old Testament, but the blood of his own life. It's that blood that achieves forgiveness and lasting reconciliation between God and people. Also in the Old Testament, uh, with the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, it was ratified with the sprinkling of blood. So when Moses makes this covenant that brings Israel into um, nationhood, 
under God, it says, Moses took the the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Again, it's, it's really hard not to see the echo of that upper room when Jesus says to his disciples, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. As he's constituting another people, another nation, as it were. And so this passage says, through this pathway of humiliation and pain, he will sprinkle many nations. So in that first stanza, in that first verse, we have the rest of the song in miniature. Exaltation through a pathway of humiliation and suffering. So we move into the second verse of the, of the song, and it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. You'll notice, first of all, that the believing comes from revelation. This isn't something that people can work out on their own. There has to be, as it were, an, a revelation by, by the arm of the Lord. Um, without going into a lot of detail, the arm of the Lord immediately would make a Jewish audience think of Exodus. The, the people came out of Egypt redeemed by the arm of the Lord, the outstretched arm of the Lord. And what Isaiah does is use a great deal of language and imagery from the first exodus to build a case for the need for and a promise of a second exodus, a new Moses who would come and deliver his people from their sins. And for those of you who are here at Uh, at our Advent series. I talked about an Exodus-shaped Christmas and developed that whole idea. Who this servant is is going to require a revelation from the arm of the Lord, as it were, because there is so little that would recommend the servant to us from a natural perspective. And the passage says he's a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground. This servant had absolutely nothing in the way of natural advantages. You know, sociologists and researchers sometimes speak about predictors of success, and they they say things like, if you went to such and such a school and then graduated and went to such and such a university, if you live in a particular suburb, if you have these kinds of connections, then they may be indicators or predictors of future success. This servant had absolutely none of those kinds of predictors. He didn't have any physical properties that stood out. The passage is brutal. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. By the way, the phrase used in the Hebrew there is used in a negative way. It's used in a positive way in Genesis where it's describing Rachel. And it says, Rachel was lovely in form and appearance. Message translation probably says she was a babe. Okay? This passage is used in the negative. Jesus was not in any way, shape, or form physically attractive. It's used in the positive form of Joseph when it says that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. One translation says he was muscular and good looking. Some, some people have it all, don't they? Okay. And I just want you to know from this passage, it's not wrong to be muscular and, and good looking. It's not fair, but it's not wrong. Okay. <laughs> So Rachel and Joseph have everything that Jesus 
has nothing of, that this servant has nothing of. Um, He was not one of the beautiful people. In spite of some of the pictures you see, Jesus was not some Jewish George Clooney. And if you were to pass him on the street, you would not take a second look at him and say, wow, he's a handsome beast. Twice in this stanza, it says, in fact, he was despised. And the idea in the Hebrew is to dismiss someone with mockery. He's from Nazareth, for goodness sake. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel says? He's the carpenter's boy. They're as as poor as synagogue mice. You know, there's rumors about his legitimacy, you know. He was dismissed with mockery. In a world much like ours, given to and blinded by outward appearances, by celebrity status, by power, by selfishness, he did not merit a second look. The eyes of his contemporaries and indeed his family could not, for the most part, penetrate the veil of his ordinariness. The idea of a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground, actually harkens back to earlier passages in Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, that we'll possibly look at next week, we see that judgment is about to fall on Israel, and the desolation is almost complete. Verse 11 says that cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are deserted, fields are ravished, trees are cut down. In the midst of near total devastation, there's one small note of hope. And in verse 13, in the message translation, it says, the country will look like a pine and oak forest with every tree cut cut down, every tree a stump, a huge field of stumps, but there's a holy seed in those stumps. God is still committed to bringing forth Abraham's seed, who will be a blessing to the nations. A little later, we're told that that seed will come out of the stem of Jesse, or out of the line of the Davidic kings. Chapter 11 and verse 1 of Isaiah, a green shoot will sprout from Jesse's stump. And in verse 10 of that same chapter, on that day, Jesse's root will be raised high. So this one, this passage in the the fourth servant song is taking us back to the hope in the midst of the judgment. Although judgment is imminent, there is hope and it's inextricably tied up with the life and ministry of this servant. So we come to stanza three, verses four to six. Surely he took our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This stanza opens with a grammatical particle that is an adversative of surprise. It's kind of like, what? Really? Surely? Nevertheless? But this nobody from and of whom nothing was expected is about to do something decisive and remarkable. And the key thought of this verse, of this stanza, is the antithesis between what we thought was the cause of his pitiful condition and what actually was the real cause We esteemed him, considered him punished by God. You know, the conventional wisdom of this day said that if a person suffered, it was because God was bringing punishment on his sin. Remember Job's friends? When Job's life fell apart and came undone, they immediately assumed Job's sin had produced that condition. You get what you deserve. 
lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It turns out, however, that he was suffering, not for his sin, but for ours. The punishment that brought our peace was on him. He was our substitute. John Stott, the Anglican scholar, claims that the principle of the whole Bible is substitution. In the beginning, you and I substituted ourselves for God, putting ourselves where God should be, and that was sin. In the end, God substitutes himself for us, putting himself where we should be, in the dock, on the cross, and that is salvation. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The transgression was ours, the stroke was his. The iniquity was ours, but the wound for it, his. Ours was the sin, but his was the death. He is loaded with wrong so that the way is clear for us to be loaded with benefits. Psalm 68 verse 19 said, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. He loads us with benefits because he loaded him with our iniquity. So we move to stanza four, verses seven to nine. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, the emphasis of this verse or stanza is clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness with which the servant approached and accepted what happened to him. He didn't physically resist. He offers no verbal resistance. He accepts what happens to him with the calmness that isn't a result of ignorance or an uncomprehending mind, but a profoundly submitted one. In verse 6, we are likened to sheep. In verse 7, he is. When the servant is likened to the sheep, it's their non-defensive, submissive nature that becomes the basis of the comparison. In us, it is the negative characteristic of the sheep in view, their obstinate waywardness. While he shares the same nature with us, in him it's wonderfully transformed, wonderfully different. Verse 9 is interesting because it seems to be saying that the burial of the servant will be among wicked people, and and yet somehow a rich man will be involved. And again, it's really hard not to see the prophetic echoes of Jesus, who died and was crucified among thieves, but a certain rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, provides the burial site with him. Remember, all that Isaiah is speaking is literally thousands of years before the events of the cross. A point of interest is that where it says... um, where it speaks in verse 9 of death. It's in the plural form in the Hebrew. It literally is deaths. And I think that makes reference to the fact that, biblically speaking, death is more than simply the cessation of physical life. The Bible speaks of death as being both physical and spiritual. Now, death is primarily about separation. Firstly, physically, it is the separation of body and soul. But secondly, there is the terrible possibility of the eternal soul being eternally separated from God. And the Bible calls that the second death. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus tasted death for every man, chapter 2, verse 9. He tasted death in both its forms. He tasted physical death. 
the soul separated from the body, but he was also separated in that moment from his Father God for the first time in all eternity. That's why he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That wasn't just the delirium of somebody in those final throes of death saying silly things. He knew that in that moment, by virtue of the sin of mankind, being placed on his shoulders, that the Father had turned his face away. The book of Habakkuk says, Thou art of uh, holier eyes than to behold evil. And in that moment when the evil of the ages is placed in one particularity, in one point, the Father turns away and Jesus knows that. And by the way, that was the thing that terrified him in the garden. It wasn't so much that he would be physically tormented, but the thought of being separated from his eternal Father broke him to such a degree that he shed his his, his, um, drops of blood. Stanza 5, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. This stanza starts with a disjunctive yet or or but, which is designed to express a contrast with the previous verses. How could this tragic miscarriage of justice take place? Well, we thought it was because of his sins, but Isaiah suggests to us it's not an accident. It's not a result of his sins, but ours. Twice in this verse, we are told, in fact, what transpires is the Lord's will. The Lord chose, or even it pleased the Lord to make his life an offering. You may remember right at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, when the people were bringing all their sacrifices to God, and they were tramping the courts, and he said, I don't take any delight in those offerings. That's the same Hebrew word used here when it says, and the Lord delighted. It's a delight that that offering did placate sin, atone for sin, produce Reconciliation. It says he was numbered among the transgressors. That means he was counted with and treated as the transgressors. Jesus, the suffering servant, was treated as if he was a transgressor, and the result is that many will be justified. He is treated as if he'd done the things that I did so that I can be treated in the way that he should have been treated. He was treated as if he'd done the things that you did so that we can be treated as if we'd done all of the things that he'd done. Throughout the song, if you go back over it, one of the things that keeps coming up is this word many. Many shall be astonished. He shall sprinkle many. Many will be justified. In verse 12, where it talks about the great and the strong, the Hebrew words used as a pair there nearly always denote multitudes rather than strength. So the idea of this song is the one for the many. Many will share the results in the victory created by the one. I wonder if Jesus had Isaiah 53 in mind when in Mark chapter 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think 
He's ministering in the shadow of those songs, creating something of his identity and vocation. Do you remember that the question posed at the beginning of Isaiah is how can the present actual Jerusalem, how can this sinful, corrupt community that's actually called to be a light to the nations, but is anything but, how can they become the promised ideal Jerusalem, the promised ideal community, being all that they're called to be, doing all that they're called to to do? Well, the answer is found in the ministry of this servant. Through his vicarious substitutionary suffering, the death of this servant makes the possibility of many entering into its victory. In the very first chapter of Isaiah, in the midst of all of the rebellion, we are given a picture of Israel, that community, and it says, your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. That's the picture of Israel. You come to the servant songs, and suddenly that picture is the servant, and this Description is a perfect description, a somewhat brutal description of what a crucified person would look like. Whipped beyond recognition so that many of them died under the lash and never even got to the cross. Open sores, not cleansed nor bandaged. A bruise from head to foot, marred beyond human recognition, all with the goal that you and I, who are like that, could be made whole. In Acts chapter 3, a lame man is healed. And Peter says of this man, and in his name, through faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So from no soundness to perfect soundness through the ministry of this servant. He took our no soundedness so that we could have his perfect soundedness. Finally, this this part of the song begins to open up in in some hope because there is the promise to the servant that he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. Now, there's a hint there of both resurrection and the church beyond the resurrection. One of the greatest tragedies that could happen in the ancient world was for a person to die without offspring to carry on their name. This servant was willing to face the greatest of tragedies without grasping. As a result, he is actually promised a divine seed. You will see your seed, you will prolong your days. In Psalm 22, which is considered by most scholars as a messianic psalm, it starts off with the very words that Jesus utters from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read through that psalm, it speaks prophetically about the cross. It speaks of his bones being out of joint. It speaks of people gathering around the cross in mockery. It speaks of people casting lots for his garment. And it finishes this Incredible psalm predicting and prophesying the cross finishes in triumph and its final verses say this, and a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. Isaiah says, he shall see his seed. Prophetically, David says, and a seed shall serve him and it shall be accounted to the Lord as a generation. Who is that generation? 
Peter says, you are a peculiar people. You are a chosen what? Peter's tapping into this. He's tapping into the Psalms. He's tapping into Isaiah. He's saying, and a seed will serve him. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Isaiah, but there's a passage in Isaiah 9 where it's describing Jesus prophetically. Wonderful counselor, exalted father, almighty God. And it goes on. We know it. We sing it. For unto us a son is born, a child is born, a son is given. And then it starts. And in the middle of that, it calls him an everlasting father. What? How does, how does it? He's the son. He's not the everlasting father. But these passages talk about the possibility of a seed flowing from him and of him, as it were, fathering a generation, a chosen generation. We're thinking about the church is a seed. You and I are the generation that is accounted to him. And it says, and he looks and sees the travail of his own soul, and he's satisfied. You know that when he looks at you, he says, it was worth it all. We sing that song, you are worth it all. He sings it back over you. You are worth it all. He sees the travail of his soul. He sees this seed, this generation that have come out of his death into share his life, and he says, you know what? It was worth it all. By the way, and I finish with it, that psalm, Psalm 22, it moves from the horror of the cross to phenomenal rejoicing. Remember last week in our service, we moved from the shouting crowds of the triumphal entry to the silence of Good Friday and Saturday. Today, we move from the silence to the shout. And that psalm, which outlines the cross so incredibly powerfully, prophetically, finishes off like this. Message translation. Here's the story. I'll tell my friends when they come to worship and punctuate it with hallelujahs. Shout hallelujah, you God worshipers. Give glory, you sons of Jacob. Adore him, you daughters of Israel. This is our servant. This is our servant king. Behold my servant. I'm going to invite our team up, and um, we're going to just take a little bit of time. We set the scene before in terms of silence. We lead to that place of rejoicing because he is risen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.